This is Steve Balton, and you are tuned into My Turning Point with special guest Fitz and the Tantrums frontman Fitz, talking about his new solo album, Head Up High, and what led to it from turning 50 and COVID to spending more time with his family than he had in years. Really interesting and deep conversation, so I hope you enjoy this one as much as we did with Fitz. So, so for you, what was sort of the turning point moment for you where you decided that you were ready to make a solo album after all this time? I mean, you know, we were on tour last year all of January, February, March. You know, and I'm a voracious New York Times reader. I read it, especially I got lots of hours in the bus driving from one state to the next. So I'm reading the news. I'm like, oh, this is not looking so good. I called a wifey and I go, oh, I think you should uh, maybe do a big Costco run. She's like, oh, whatever. <laughs> Next day I called her. I'm like, uh, did you do it? She's like, no, I've got three kids here at home. It's madness. I was like, okay. The next day I called her. I'm like, no, you need to go now. And she went, she went to Costco and shopped and literally the guy was like, are you having a big party? Because this was literally three or four weeks before everything happened. And I kept telling all the other guys on the bus, all the bandmates and everybody, I was like, listen, send your wives or your significant others to do a little stockpile and get some toilet paper or whatever it is, because this is happening. And everyone's like, oh, you're just being fear mongering. And then we were up in Redding, California. We had just built the entire stage. And our tour, tour manager, Aaron, walked in and goes, Shows canceled, tours cut short. We're all going home in an hour. Came home and, you know, was in shock. I think like everybody else, you know, we have three boys at home. We have a seven-year-old, a three-and-a-half-year-old, and an 18-month-old at home. And these are, these are not just uh, ages where you can set them on a mission and walk away. It's like constant supervision, constant care, Zoom, trying to get these little ones to do Zoom school. <laughs> and it was so hard for me and my wife and I at the beginning. We were just cooking, cleaning, three meals a day, 24 hours a day, just trying to take care of these kids. There was no school. And this, what you see here, this is my home studio in my garage. And this became my oasis, right? And every time, every hardest period in my life. I always go to music, whether I'm depressed, emotionally distraught, whatever it is. And music every time saves my spirit. And I had planned uh, a couple a weeks worth of writing with a good a friend of mine, actually another Long Beach uh, guy, this guy, Ryan Daly, who was a good friend of mine who I'd worked before, with before. And we were supposed to work on that Monday, and of course, nobody was going out. We were like, okay, should we try and write on Zoom? This is weird. So we tried it, and it was so challenging at first to even try and find a way to be creative via this, right? Yeah. And, you know, it took a little bit of, of 
trial and error, but we kind of got in a groove and I had me and my three friends and we kind of just made it like a daily check-in. It was like kind of the only time we would see anybody out that wasn't living in our house. Right. And, and we just used that as a way to kind of keep each other sane. And we just dove in those first four months of the four or five months of the pandemic. I was in here five, six days a week, just writing music. And as I started to write it, it just felt kind of like, oh, this is, I'm by myself in here. I'm going to talk about things that are specific to me. And what if I sort of open the lane up of what I'm allowed to do and fits in the tantrums, right? Because people have expectations of you as a band and stuff. And I'd say about halfway through making the songs, it was like, you know what? This just feels different. I'm singing in a different way. I'm talking about different things. You know, I had just celebrated my 50th birthday in the pandemic. You know, there's a song on the new album that comes out at the end of this month called Slow Down. That's just literally about that moment where you realize from a, a, a you transfer from an intellectual place of understanding mortality to a deeply emotional one where you see the the finite of your own existence, right? So I just started exploring these different things and it just kind of felt different and I wasn't able to see the guys in the band or record with the guys in the band. And it just kind of evolved from there. And then I was like, wait, is this, a, is this a solo record? I think it is. And once I did that, I sort of dug in even further to these kind of maybe slightly more personal themes. Um, and before I knew it, I turned around and I had recorded 40, 50 songs and tried to pick the 12 that I felt were the best ones and was lucky enough that the label got behind and was like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll let you make a solo record. Well, it's funny. There's a lot of directions to go in with that. And, and it's interesting. By the way, it's so funny that you say recorded 40 or 50 songs because that became a, a sort of running joke for me in doing literally hundreds of interviews during this last year is that for a lot of artists with you know so much time, they had that ability to just work constantly. So we were joking about it started. I don't remember who the first artist I was joking with about this, but it's become a running theme is that uh, the pandemic box set. So will we ever see the, you know, the full 40, 50 song box set version down the line? I don't know. You know me, I'm a guy that I'd say I'm halfway talented, but I just have a, a great work ethic more than anything. Uh, my, my tenacity and my work ethic have, I think, been the key to my success because I'm a decent songwriter. I'm definitely not the best songwriter in the world, but the way I've been able to write good songs is I just write a lot of songs, right? <laughs> Um, because I also have watched it with other artists, friends of mine that have, you know, exploded over the years and stuff is, I think the danger is once you have some success, you just think that everything you do is awesome. And I don't know if it's my own like low self-esteem or fear of failure or whatever drives me, but I've never had that thing where I think that what I'm doing is awesome. I'm always pushing and pushing and pushing. And when you write 40, 50, or like on the last 50 in the Tantrums record, the All the Fields record, I wrote 100 songs for that record. Um, you know, and then you're really able to see, like, as you're doing that and you're writing so much, it's really forcing you to peel back the layers of the onion, you know, and keep, I find it as a way to kind of therapeutically dig deeper into what your subconscious is, is really feeling. But at the end of the day, the ones that make it on the album are cool. There might be one or two others that might see the light of day, but then those other ones are just the 
the the abandoned uh, ideas on the floor that you you think you may it might pick up at a certain point, but you just I, I found I never go back to those ideas that didn't make the first cut. Well, it's interesting because before we come on to you know the individual tracks on this record, you know I mean it's funny that you say that in terms of the modesty, and I appreciate that. But you know it's so funny then because I talk about this with artists all the time too. First of all, every artist in the world is their own worst critic. You know by by across the board, you know? So every artist is a perfectionist. And so it's like, okay, so then I'm so curious because as you say, you know, you say you're not the best songwriter, but you know, you have a work ethic. So, but then when you write songs like Money Grabber or Out of My League that do catch on and become these hits with people and that resonate with millions of people, are you still surprised? Does it still catch you off guard when you have songs or can you go back as a fan and sort of look at the hits and be like, okay, I can see now why it was that people got so into that song. I think the more I've done it, I've honed that skill. Um, you know, when we wrote that first album, we didn't have a record deal or anything. We had somehow magically been given an opportunity to perform on KCRW, which is our, you know, which is like the mecca of independent, like local, you know, public radio right and we went on the road and started playing and that was just one of those road tested things where we played every night money grabber wasn't even out yet and yet everybody after the show would be like hey what's that money grabbers what's that song money you know and kept talking about it so i knew that that was the song that kind of led us there and then every subsequent album after that i've just intuitively like I've known that those songs, when Noel brought me the first beginnings of the idea that became uh, out of my league, as soon as she played the demo, I was like, there's something here. We're chasing this. I knew, I knew, you know, when we wrote hand clap, that song was one of those rare moments where a song feels like it almost writes itself in like 15 minutes. And by minute seven of writing it, I knew we had our hit song. I just knew it. Um, and it turned out to be right, you know. Um, I think I have always had a great sense of the macro. You know, everybody in Fits and the Tantrums, they've dedicated their life to being so good at what they do. You know, J uh, John the drummer and James Saxflayer, they're both classically trained musicians, also prof very proficient jazz musicians, chart readings. They're good at what they do, this this thing. But me, um, I can play everything okay. I've never dedicated my life to being great at one instrument, but I've always had an amazing sense of arrangement, aesthetics because right every chord's been written now in the western scale all you have now is the vibe it does this sound like it's uh tears for fears off their first album you know is this changes you know you know what is it is it watch me bleed do you know that song i love yeah. it i love that song so much <laughs> you know what is it that that defines the aesthetics and the mood of a song now? It's all about the, the landscape you paint. And that's what I've been always great at is the big picture. And that's why me and the rest of the band have always worked so well. They're so good at their instruments, and I'm really good at the big picture. Well, so it's interesting then, because when it came time to do this record, 
obviously you find yourself, like you said, they've always been good at the instruments and you're good at the big picture. So how did you hone in on stuff then and on the micro stuff on this record since it was you? Uh, I had to push myself to dig in harder because there was nobody here, right? So I had to like force myself, okay, well, I love this chord progression. Now I got to learn how to play it, you know, but now I got to learn on the piano. Now I got to learn on the guitar. And it pushed me that way. And I was the guy that that's, lives in Long Beach, that grew up in Long Beach, my friend Ryan Daly, who co-wrote and co-produced the whole entire record with me. You know, he couldn't go to his studio. He was literally on his laptop, on the side dresser, in the corner of his bedroom for four months straight. Just like, not even a proper desk. Just like trying to get to all the quick key functions on his laptop. And we did that whole thing, him and I, you know, uh, playing things back and forth, saying them, you know, I would literally, he would have the track playing. We use this thing called audio movers, where if he plays it on his Ableton system at home, it comes right through my speakers here. It's amazing. So I would literally be with my iPhone, which every single acoustic guitar on my new record was recorded with my iPhone. Or we'd literally, I would be sitting here with the iPhone like... Banging on cans, <laughs> percussion stuff, and I would just keep sending him these little voice notes. And he would, at a certain point, he, I could see on his face, he was like, Jesus friggin' Christ, Fitz, stop sending me these stupid voice notes. <laughs> we ended up using every single one of those motherfucking voice notes. Every single <laughs> one of them made it on. It was like a quirky little, like, piano with, you know, my piano that I grew up playing as a child's right over here off camera all my crappy little kids' percussion toys. I sent him all that stuff. We used every single one of those things. And they, because they were recorded kind of with this thing that sounds amazing and crappy all at the same time because it's got its own compressor, right? We turned all these things, so many of the background vocals, we just did it on the fly, this new way of we're not together, but we're going to transfer these ideas and I'd be singing an idea, right? And he'd be like, oh, I love that idea. But what we didn't realize was there's this whole latency that happens with Zoom, right? So I'd be singing him my verse idea, which is on the one. But because of the latency, he was hearing it as an upbeat after the one. And then, so then when we finally came to formalize the idea and I recorded my version and sent it back to him, he was like, oh, wait, that verse, you're singing it on the one, but the whole time it's been off the one. And I was like, oh, because of the latency. And then we'd listen to the idea and we're like, you know what? It's kind of better off the one. <laughs> Thank you, Zoom. <laughs> let's, do, let's move it to off the one. And we just did that flow back. I mean, it was the craziest process to try and figure out that flow. But once we did, it became hyper productive because also there wasn't a ton of time for us to like mess around. A lot of times when I have sessions here and there's people sitting on the couch, invariably we kind of get distracted or goof off or conversations, you know, it's like Zoom just kind of made it more, way more efficient. And I had these kids in the background where I would have to run in and out in and out and help them. So it was like I had to really use my time wisely. Well it's interesting. Let's come out of the writing of this record and you said it allowed you opportunity to go deeper. And what I like about the record is it's a mix of fits. You know, it's like 
you know, there's definitely songs like Head Up High. It's, it's got slower, you know, feels like slow down, obviously. But then obviously you have that one, two, three in the middle of, you know, still cool jump. I need a dance floor, which are more, you know, upbeat, happy stuff. So it's interesting for you. Was, were there one or two songs early on that really shaped the writing of this record that, that shaped the sort of theme of it? Yeah, you know, obviously this was the pandemic. There was uh there's quite a few pandemic uh lockdown isolation songs that we wrote that uh ultimately didn't make the the record because at the end of the day they were powerful and emotional, but I was like, you know what? If I don't even want to listen to this song right now because it's depressing the shit out of me, <laughs> who the fuck else is going to want to listen to this song? So I was like I was like, plus, I'm a, a deep student of history and the 1918 Spanish flu. And I knew, I was saying at month one, I was telling people, come August, September, a year and a half from now, we'll be coming back into normal. Everyone's like, you're crazy, Fitz. You're so negative. I was like, and they've all come back to me now. We're like, you were right. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's, it became really clear to me that I needed to write messages to keep myself and my friends that we were Zooming and writing. I mean, a perfect example is, you know, in, in addition to Ryan, we would meet up with a couple other friends like uh, Sean Van Vliet and uh, Nick Long. We would all meet on these things. And you could tell the morning that we wrote Head Up High that we had all met here and we just all were feeling feeling that like two and a half, three month mark of the lockdown being like, what the hell? This is Groundhog's Day. I just feel crazy. Everyone was kind of crusty and depressed and confused. And that, that song was written literally to like lift me out of my funk that day and to remember to, to try and stay positive and to keep your head up, right? And to answer your question, what is a song that really defined in the early part of the writing? I would say it was Head Up High um, and uh, the song Slow Down or the, uh, another song on the, on the uh, album called The List, uh, which The List is one of my favorite songs on the record because it's, it's just that sort of self-reflective moment of just being like, why, why, do I, why am I such a fuck up? Why am I such a mess up? Why am I so always like, I know I'm old enough to know what my issues are, my problems are, and why am I looking at this same list one more time, one more year? I haven't done shit about it. Well, see, that's so interesting because I've spoken about this with so many people too, is that, you know, obviously it's funny that you say you haven't done shit about it. Most people really haven't had time to reflect. And especially when you're on the road, you're doing things. This really was sort of a turning point year for so many people where you get opportunity to be at home, to reflect on stuff. So I'm curious now with the year to do this stuff, were there things that you were able to cross off the list and not be a fuck up about anymore? Are there things that you're actually, that you feel like are changing now from having this year? I mean, a hundred percent, you know, uh, you know, for, for me, I've been up until this year, I was on the road for 12 years straight without a break 
never home. The longest stretch I was ever at home in those 12 years was maybe two months. If I was lucky, I'd get two months at home. So pretty much at the two month mark of the lockdown pandemic on, that was the longest I'd spent at home in 12 years. The longest time I'd ever spent with my kids. My third child was born uh, two weeks early while I was in South Korea doing festivals and concerts in South Korea. And he came early and I missed the birth of my third son, which, you know, had deeply impacted my wife. She was very emotional about it because the baby almost was born in the car on the way to the hospital. And thank God her mother was in San Diego and was able to drive up in two hours and get her before she like gave birth. But it was a weird thing to not be there. And the reality is, is that I've never spent that much time, uninterrupted time with my kids. I'm in and out. It's my wife who's holding it down. And I realized for myself, I kind of liked it that way. I'm not, you know, I've struggled with being present and always being like a, a dad that's engaged. And this last year forced me to like step up as, as a parent and, and watch these human beings grow and dig deeper with my wife. And I'm sure like everybody else, we had to work at our, we saw each other every day for 300, you know, Friday was 365 day anniversary when I was on tour and the tour got cut short in, in Reading and we all got sent home 365 days on Friday. And my wife and I, I looked at her and go, holy shit, babe, 365 days we made it. And we've never spent this much time, her and I, this many days together. And we, we like each other still. We've fallen more in love. We've, we've had to work as a team. So to me, like learning to be more present, to show up more, to work on my intimacy with my kids and my wife, those were the big challenges and goals or, or things that I achieved in, in the lockdown. Yeah, it's inter- I mean, that's one of the really interesting things. And again, I'm lucky that I, I mean, in the last year, I've talked with everyone from Ozzy Osbourne and Alice Cooper to Tim McGraw and David Guetta, you know, and everyone, every major artist has faced a lifestyle change. So I'm so curious before we wrap up on the album, it's funny for you, how will this lifestyle change affect you going forward? Because that's been an interesting thing to talk about with artists, whether it's Brandy Carlisle talk about playing smaller venues that, you know, you realize matter more. Or it's artists wanting to spend more time because like Geta was telling me, he's like, I've never spent a summer vacation with my kids. Yeah. Same. You know? So so for you though, having had this opportunity, now that you know Life is Beautiful Festival was just announced and it looks like live music is coming back, will you be able to incorporate a mix going forward? Uh, I think so. I think at first, you know, I mean this you know, the the other side is that as there's been all this turmoil in our world. Um, you know, we've all had to slow down and take notes of, of truths, ugly truths of our country, of our history, of our own privilege, our own access, uh, a system that is real. You know, I mean, I don't think Black Lives Matter moment would have had such an impact if we weren't all forced to sit the fuck still and listen to something that needed to be heard for decades. Right. Yeah. And I've stressed out so many nights because I make my money on tour. 
And I took that for granted. And this whole year, there's been this parallel where I'm like having the best time of my life with my kids. And I'm stressing the fuck out on this side, being like, how am I going to make a living? You're like, holy shit, I bought this house. I got mortgage. I got two car payments for two cars that have been sitting in the driveway for six months straight. You know, Um, so I think going back at first, I'm going to have to hustle because I got to pay for uh, preschool and all that stuff. Right. Blah, blah, blah. But I think what I've realized is that like I need to find a little more balance of like making sure that I'm just not always on the road because that doesn't work for me as a person, let alone me as a dad and for my kids. You know, it's interesting. My kids are so attached to us after a year of spending every day with them that it's going to be a transition for me to like go back to my nomadic traveling Wilbury's lifestyle, you know, it's definitely going to be an adjustment because I'm, I'm used to being at home. You know, I spent so many years just traveling from a different city. Every 18 hours I was on in motion, you know, so it's going to be a transition. But like I said, for me, I think I'm going to try and find a little more balance between being on the road and family. All right. Well, you know, I won't keep you much longer, but I'm curious, to, you know, bringing it back to how high, I mean, with, um, or head is high. I'm sorry. Well, it's funny. Actually, I do want to ask you too, because you mentioned about the idea of, of happy songs. And that's something you've always been so good at. So I'm curious for you, you know, coming into this year of lockdown, you know, and going through this where music, you uh, also artists had an opportunity to listen to a lot of music. Were there songs that really made you happy? Were those songs that pick you up every time? Yeah, you know, I mean, for me, I've had in the last 12 years sort of this bizarre relationship with outside music, right? Um, I used to, you know, music saved my life as a little boy, as a teenager. It's been my thing. And then as it became my career and my work, I started listening to less and less music because also I'm making music all day or I'm playing live shows and my ears are ringing like a crazy motherfucker at the end of the night every night. My ears are tired. I just don't listen to that much music. And this year has been like getting back to the joy, the joy of listening to music. And I've had two artists that for my wife and I have saved our souls and provided many a dance party. And that's Remy Wolf and Bakar. Those, Interesting. Those two artists. Um, I mean, Remy Wolf. I I love her so much. I love all of the the influences from like the seventies, eighties, technotronic New York club dance scene influences. All uh, I just love what her and her partner Jared Solomon. Uh, do I'm so blown away by he does everything at home. He makes their whole record on uh, reason, no less. And that record is amazing. All the stuff she's put out this past year in the pandemic. And then Bakar has just been uh, this, this artist that I've become, my wife and I have become obsessed with. So those have been our two big things. We've had so many dance parties my kids even know all the words to all their albums. You know, I had this, especially Remy Wolf at the beginning because she's, her music is so danceable and fun. I had to send her and 
her musical partner, Jared, both messages just to let them know like how important, like truly their albums saved my wife's and I's souls in this pandemic, like for real. Awesome. All right. So at some point, by the way, too, since we're talking about live music now, I mean, will you be incorporating stuff from Head is High into your live show or will you be doing any sort of special shows with that? I mean, have you thought about doing these songs live? I don't know. You know, I've performed them a, cu- a couple of times. I'm going to perform Head Up High on Ellen uh, tomorrow. I've done a couple mini performances, but, you know, at the same time, we'll see if I play some of those songs with Fits and the Tantrums. But also anybody that knows Fits and the Tantrums knows we crush it live. And that's where, that's how we got noticed at the beginning. We, Noel and myself, we never stopped dancing, singing. The guys are such badass musicians. It's like we try and put on a show that makes you not be able to stand still. So I'm excited also to play with Fitz and the Tantrums again. I might end up doing a couple shows for just the Fitz solo record or play a couple with the band. We'll see. I'm not really worried. I was just stoked to be able to to make something in the pandemic and try and write some music that spoke to the pandemic, but not always in the total direct way. But I also wanted to write some happy, joyful, inspired music to help everybody survive and come out of this friggin' pandemic. Well, then with that in mind, we'll make this last question, but it's funny when you go back and listen to the album as a whole, what do you take from it? Because that's always an interesting thing as well is that, you know, I talk about this with countless artists and right when you're making a record, you're in the midst of it. You, and especially when you're writing, by the way, which is so subconscious, you don't really process everything. It's only when you go back and listen to the whole thing. And especially for you who did 40 to 50 songs, I'm sure that when you put together these 14, you looked at it and it was like, oh, wow, holy shit. There's a lot of stuff in there. I didn't realize I was thinking. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I think uh, the approach to my 50th birthday, I've been having this feeling that I wasn't exactly able to to understand what it was. And it was in writing the song Slow Down uh, that that's when I realized, oh, right, intellectually, I've always understood that life is finite, but now I'm understanding it emotionally. And it's really in this moment of being still and seeing my kids and they'll never be this age again. It was very impactful to me to sort of like hold on to that idea. You know, and I've always, you know, always tried to put out uplifting music out into the world. And I've seen the power of what that can do. You know, when I, you know, one time we were on the road with Fitz and the Tantrum, we got a message from a family saying, you know, you guys are coming to Texas. We would love for you to meet our daughter. We can't tell you that she's what your music has meant to her. She had a life-threatening disease this last year and spent most of the year in hospitals doing treatments and we didn't know if she was going to make it. And your song, Hand Clap, became her her mantra song, Get Up and Go, Keep Her Motivated. And it became us as parents. And it's almost making me cry right now because we met that family backstage and to meet this little girl and then to meet her, sorry, her parents 
and being a parent myself and seeing the power of what that was, was like, oh, right, you can make a song and have a dance party in your studios, you're making it, and then you put it out in the world and it could mean something to you and then you kind of forget and then you can see the power. I don't claim to be the most deepest writer in the world, the most, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be Jeff Buckley, you know, or, or whoever it is, you know. I love making music. I try and write inspiring, positive messages and then to see how important that was to that family was everything. And ever since that day, I've never taken for granted that idea that even a silly song, I'm sure when the guys wrote Chumbawamba, they were like, whatever. But I'm sure that fucking song like was so important to somebody in the world, right? And what an impact it has. And you write something and you have a meaning for it. And then you let it go into the world and people can make it their own. And what a powerful, beautiful thing of what that is. And I've never forgotten that. And so when people knock me for writing positive songs, I, I tell them that it, it, one, it matters. And I'm not just writing a song like, don't give up, keep your head up. I'm a guy, I didn't get my friggin' first break till I was 38, 38. Basically, me and motherfucking Willie Nelson. <laughs> Name somebody else. Very few people get their break that light. So my whole journey with, with Fits and the Tantrums and now with this solo record, it wasn't like it was given to me at 16 or 19 or 22 or even 25. I didn't actually get the first pop-off break. Money Grabber didn't even pop off till I was 40. So these ideas of like not giving up or keep going or keep your head up, they are positive messages, but they're also messages that, God damn it, I had to believe on such a deep level for myself because when I was 30, I had a band, had a song, everyone thought it was a hit, Manager, got 15 showcases at SIR in Hollywood, private stage, record executives. They were all like, at 30, they were all like, nope, he's too old. Nope, he's too old. <laughs> I got 15 nopes. He's too old. Forget it. It wasn't until a decade after that that I got my first break. So I put those positive message in there because it's born out of a truth that I've lived that if I hadn't been my biggest believer and had that work ethic and that tenacity and busted my butt, I wouldn't be here today, you know, at 50 releasing on the, on the eve of releasing my solo record and just got our fits, next fits in the tantrums. They just picked up the option for that. So we're starting to work on that. I mean, God damn it. It's pretty, pretty special. And it doesn't, I do not take it for granted. That's awesome. I love the story too about the kid in Texas because it's funny. I've spoken about this with so many artists and it's like, you know, I mean, look, when you put out a song, once you put it out there, it's not yours anymore. It belongs exactly. to the world. Exactly. You know? It's, so it's so true. So it's interesting for you. We'll wrap up on this. Are there songs from this album when you go back and look at them that you, and of course you can never anticipate what's going to happen with a song. But are there any songs for you off the top that where you felt that instant sort of special connection that you think about now? All right, well, this may be the song that saved someone's life. And it's so funny because I talk about this artist all the time too. Is like, you know, having a hit record is great. It's awesome. But having a song that changes someone's life, <laughs> even if it only changes one person's life, is way more fucking valuable than any hit record. 
trust for a guy that's been on radio for 12 years, that's chasing, has had big hits, has had songs that didn't make it. You know, I've experienced that whole gamut. And, it, you know, when, when we met that family, you know, most of the guys in the band, we, have, we were all weeping, like deeply weeping and so happy to see this family on the other side of such a challenge for them. That, it, it really is so much more powerful than any hit song. And look, I love a hit song. I love, I love that moment. It's exciting to see that. But that thing where you've actually touched somebody or helped somebody. And, you know, that story is one of so many of, you know, for so many years, we used to come out and sell our own merch every night for the first five or six years of the band. We basically did it till we couldn't do it anymore because we would sit out there for three hours after a show every night to meet every single person. But the number of stories of people just talking about what things meant for them, it really does impart to you. That is, that's the gift. Standing and playing a show and looking down at uh, somebody singing every word to every deep cut on the record. And you can see how much they feel it. Right. And how much it's been. There's that, that is everything. It's not the chart positions or how many you sold. I mean, that stuff's fun and all, and it's easy to get wrapped up in it, but that's not the real deal. And that's not why I made music. I never had a choice to make music. I came out of my mom's womb singing. I probably drove my parents friggin' crazy because I never shut up. You know, I didn't have a choice to make music. I went to film school, uh, got a degree in film, and went back to music because I didn't have a choice. It's just always been the thing I've had to do. And uh, you are 100% right. The charts don't matter. The hit songs don't matter. That connection with people... That, it, that's why you make music and what a greater gift because for 16, 17 years, I made so many songs, had multiple bands, had no less than seven, eight bands in 15 years and nobody gave a shit and nobody heard any of the stuff and nobody had, none of that music made a single impact because nobody heard it. So this, to affect somebody like you're saying, that's... That'll be the thing that'll stay stay with me for the rest of my life for sure. Cool. Anything you want to add? Because I feel like that's a really good wrap-up note. No, amazing and such a great interview. I appreciate it so much, my friend. Always great catching up with you. Thanks so much. You too, bud. Have a good one. You too. Thanks. Bye. Hey, this is Steve Balton. You've been listening to My Turning Point with special guest Fitz from Fitz and the Tantrums. Thanks. Why choose proven quality sleep from Sleep Number? Because our Sleep Number 360 smart bed is really smart. It senses your movement and automatically adjusts to help keep you both comfortable. Plus, it's temperature balancing so you stay cool. It's even smart enough to know exactly how long, how well, and when you slept. And to help you get almost 30 minutes more restful sleep per night. Sleep Number takes care of the science. All you have to do is sleep. 
And now, during our Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed Queen Now Only $19.99, only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. When it comes to LASIK, Dr. Boutros and the Eye Center have led the way for the past 25 years. Today, this tradition continues by being one of the few practices in the country to offer you iDesign 2.0, using the same technology as the NASA James Webb Telescope. And in the hands of an elite surgeon like Dr. Boutros, more patients are seeing 2020 or better after LASIK. Right now, enjoy 20% off iLASIK with iDesign. Go to theeyecenter.com or call 888-844-2020. Some restrictions apply. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 